0: In your Bible this morning, the book of Mark, chapter 15. If you will turn there with me, please. Mark, chapter 15, in your Bible. And in a moment, we'll stand and read the account of the crucifixion from the Gospel of Mark. The subject today is the cross and a Christian worldview. The cross and a Christian worldview. And Mark chapter 15, please stand as we read the account of the Lord's dying for us on the cross. I began the reading in Mark 15 and 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, a political decision, of course, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus, and when he had scourged him to be crucified... And the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple. And they planted a crown of thorns and put it about his head. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed, and they did spit upon him. And bowing their knees, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him into the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon him, upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over his head, the king of the Jews." And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand, the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it up in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross." Likewise, also the chief priest, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And that would be from noon to three in the afternoon. At the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloah, Eloah Lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard him, when they heard it, said, Behold he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar. And put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, meaning he dismissed his spirit. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out, And gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. Now, keep your finger there because we'll reference that in the message. But go to 2 Corinthians 5, if you will, and I want to show you one verse and then one more in second or in 1 Peter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Just one verse, but it sums up what we've read in Mark. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the really great gospel verses in your Bible. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'll read it again. Read it with me. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, 1 Peter 3.18, another summary. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive. By the Spirit. Thank you, and you may be seated. As I've told you throughout this series of messages on reality, making sense of a crazy world, a series of messages on a Christian and biblical worldview, I've quoted a number of times Charles Coulson, and Charles Coulson wrote a number of years ago that Christianity is more than a religion. And Christianity is more than just the moral lifestyle that Jesus Christ taught in his teachings. And Christianity is even more than that. He is, it is more than having a personal relationship with him that we talk about often as believers. But Christianity is more than all of that. Christianity is a lifestyle. Christianity is a worldview. It is a way of looking at life and interpreting the events that occur around us in the world and in our own personal and private lives. What a week this has been. The United States has sent its missiles over and we bombed a Syrian airfield where they were launching attacks and killing little babies with sarin gas. And then we've had The Russians retort and say, we're on the verge of World War III, if you do that again. And we've had other major developments in the world, all of which remind us that this is a very sinful, a very violent, and a very broken world that we live in, a very dangerous world that we live in today. And we interpret those events different than people who are not believers. I understand the older I get and the more I immerse myself in the Word of God that I'm very different from many other people that live around me and in my society. I think differently, very, very differently, radically differently than so many people that I know. And it's because I, I am intentionally, consciously spending my life developing a frame of reference where I interpret life differently. You know, we all see the same evidence. We all look at the same evidence. Whether we're an atheist, a secularist, or a, a Baptist preacher, we look at the same events, the same evidence. But we interpret them so differently, we draw completely different conclusions based on whether or not we have a biblical worldview. Now, last week I spoke on the life lived backwards referring to Jesus Christ's life. I described how his life was different than any other person because everyone else, we're born to live. But Jesus Christ repeatedly stated, and we read the verses, that he was born to die. And so he lived his life backwards compared to the rest of humanity. And throughout his life, and especially in the latter part of his life, the cross was the focus of the life of Jesus Christ. It was absolutely his focus, almost, you could say, his obsession. And as Christians today, the cross is central to our Christian faith. I want you to get hold of that thought. The cross is central to the Christian faith. Every religion, every ideology, every movement has its symbol. Judaism has a star of David. Islam has a crescent. Marxism, communism has the hammer and the sickle. Christianity has the cross. I hope that you are not so familiar with it, you don't even see it. But when you enter our building, the dominant feature as you look toward the front of this building is what? It's that big cross. It doesn't look very big from where you sit, but it's 10 feet high. And it dominates the focal point of this church. And may that always be true, that while we sing songs and while the preacher preaches and while we read the scripture and while we do whatever we do, that overseeing and overwhelming even everything that we do is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the symbol of our faith. In fact, I would go so far today to say to you that there is no gospel without the cross of Jesus Christ. Take away the cross and we have nothing really to offer to the world except a system of moralistic teachings. The cross is key and center in the Christian faith. In fact, I would say to you that any gospel that speaks of Christ without the gospel and the atonement is a false gospel. Christmas is not the gospel in and of itself, nor are the teachings of Jesus Christ and the Sermon on the Mount and other sermons that reveal the proper way for us to live our lives. Even next Sunday as we celebrate Easter, the resurrection in and of itself, by itself, is not the gospel. Without the cross... What I'm doing right now, preaching the Word of God, is pointless. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul writes, The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who perish, but unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. I submit to you that any message even of the love of God, without mention of the fact that that love led him to the cross, is mere sentimentalism. There is no Christian life without the cross. As Christ was not indifferent to the needs of the world around him, so sincere Christians cannot be indifferent to the needs of the world around us. If you would be my disciple, he said, you must take up your cross. Take up. Uh, That's voluntary, isn't it? Take up, that's Intentional, that's not accidental It doesn't just come upon us If you would be my disciple Take up your cross Do it daily Follow me The Lord Jesus Christ And so the real Christian today Cannot be indifferent to the needs of the world Around him or her The good news is that God took upon himself A human body And a human nature And now, as our representative, he suffered the death penalty for our sins, for every man and every woman. And now I can say, my sin has been dealt with. My sin has been dealt with once and for all and now and forever. My sin was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the heart of the gospel And you take that away, you don't have real good news for anybody. That is the crux of the entire matter. Number one today, I would say to you that the entire life of Jesus Christ was focused on the cross. His entire life was focused on the cross. At his birth, do you remember, the angel came and spoke to Joseph and said, Now, the baby is going to be born, and I want you to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Saving his people from their sins is a way of describing for us the cross. The cross was necessary for him to do that. The angels at his birth in Luke chapter 1 said, to the the shepherds below them in the field. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior. There's the cross, who is Christ the Lord. We don't know much about the years of the Lord Jesus Christ from the time he was 12. We see him in the temple talking to the doctors there and his mother and daddy coming to pick him up. We don't know much about Jesus Christ from the time he was 12 years old until he was 30 years old. We call those the silent years because there's nothing, absolutely nothing in the Scripture about what happened. We know that he was in Nazareth for most of that time. We know he was working in the carpenter shop. He was called a carpenter. We know that he lived in a very, very small rural uh, hometown setting. We don't believe that he had any particular powers at that time, that he had sublimated them He was waiting for the time when his public ministry would begin and the Holy Spirit would come upon him. And so he begins his ministry at 30 years of age. His ministry actually began with his baptism. And even in his baptism, we see a picture of his death, his burial in the water, and his resurrection. Baptism by immersion pictures the gospel Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection. Immediately after that baptism of the Lord described in the Bible, he's led into the wilderness. And there he spends 40 days tempted of the devil. He's fasting, which makes him weak after 40 days. He would be incredibly weak physically. At his weakest point physically... Satan comes and attacks him in a great confrontation The Bible describes in Matthew chapter 4 And Satan tempts him in every way At least in principle that you can be tempted Through the world, the flesh, and the devil himself And Jesus wins in that confrontation He defeats Satan He shows him that even in his most weakened state He is more powerful than evil that Satan brings before him that day. And then there's the year of popularity. He became a popular figure. He's a well-known preacher now. He's really a phenomenon. People are pouring in to see him. The crowds are so great they can't get to him. They're overwhelming him. And he preaches and he teaches and he does miracles. He heals sick people. He opens the eyes of blind people. He multiplies food and makes feeds a a multitude one day. He even raises three people in the scripture, the accounts are there, three people from the dead, absolutely demonstrating his power, his deity, that he is God. He has power over sin. He has power over matter and energy to create from a boy's lunch enough to feed a massive multitude. He, beyond any contradiction, proves that he is absolutely unique in the annals of history, that he is God in a human body. His teaching was so wonderful, the Bible says they marveled at his gracious words, and they said, no man ever spoke like this, and nobody did. He performed those miracles and confirmed to the skeptics who he was. But he also knew that popularity runs very, very shallow, and that the fickle crowd can turn on you in a heartbeat, that men's loyalty is paper thin. And after a year of that popularity, he begins to come into conflict with the religious establishment of his day, and they begin to turn on him and they hate him. They're jealous of him, they're envious, because he shows people the reality of so-called religion. It's not some sort of an outward show, but he says that true religion is from the heart, and they turn against him. And so you have his year of popularity of the three years of his ministry. You have the year of beginning and then you have the year of popularity and then you have the year of rejection. And he begins to speak now of his approaching death. He tells his disciples several times, we read some of those scriptures in the last week or two, several times he tells the disciples, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer up there. I'm going to be treated horribly by the religious leaders. And then they're going to crucify me, and then I'm going to be buried, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. It was not like nobody ever had heard this before. He kept on telling them repeatedly, and they didn't really understand. They thought he was speaking in metaphorical and symbolic terms, but no, he was speaking literal, physical truth to them. And on Palm Sunday, of course, he sort of uh, had a resurgence of popularity as he rode into the city. A small group of people said, let's make him the king, and he's powerful enough. He'll run the Romans out. But it didn't happen. It only lasted for a day or two. And one day he raised a friend named Lazarus from the grave. If you'll study the Gospels carefully, it almost seems like that's the break point that that has great significance because if you'll read a little further after he raises Lazarus, you'll find out that now the scribes and Pharisees are trying to put Lazarus to death. They're threatening him because as long as he's alive, their arguments are all neutered. And so he raises Lazarus from the dead, and that just intensifies the desire of his enemies the resolve of his enemies to kill him and so then in the last days he begins to make final preparation and he goes and has the passover with the disciples he does all those things that you read about in this holy week this passion week he knows that there that thousands of years of prophecy is about to be fulfilled And not only thousands of years of prophecy, but literally hundreds of prophecies themselves. They're going to be fulfilled. And he knows he stands right now at the very apex of history. That all the rays of history are going to be pointing to that one spot on that lonely mountain as they crucify him. And he is going to deal with the world's greatest issue. The issue of evil. As I began preaching to you on worldview, I said there are ultimate questions that a worldview. All worldviews deal with these questions. What are the questions? Where did I come from? Well, the Christian worldview deals with that. Why am I here? Or what is the purpose and meaning of life? What's really important in life? Where am I going when I check out of here? And one of the other ultimate questions that I've mentioned frequently is, why is there so much pain and evil and suffering? Why are there so many bad things in life? And we can't control them. They come upon us and they destroy people over and over in every economic and social strata of society all around the world. If you've watched the news and you've seen what that gas did to those babies, those little children, how that sarin gas, they breathe it in their bodies, their nervous system just goes crazy and they're just trembling and uncontrollably. The suffering that those little children go through And if you're a thinking person, you almost have to say, why? What kind of a world do we live in? And the skeptic blames God. Why don't you do something about it, God? Don't ever forget what I'm getting ready to say. He has done something about it. But because men are rebellious, and they hate him, and they rebel against him, then they won't accept his solution. Unbelief has brought that evil to us. And so Jesus' whole life was focused on the cross. He's always talking about it. The next time you read the Gospels, mark in your Bible every time he talked about the cross, mark a cross there when he talks about what he's anticipating in his life. The second thing then is let's look at then that cross. Let's look at it a moment today. Let's look at his death on the cross. Crucifixion was the absolute cruelest form of execution that they could conceive of, that wicked minds could ever contrive, in those days at least. It was literally torture, and it was torture for hours and in some cases for literally for days. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst sort of criminals and rebels. The Romans discovered that they could crucify people. They wouldn't crucify a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were protected from it. It was such a heinous type of death but they could, they could um, crucify their enemies. And when they crucified them, they did it publicly. They did it out on a main thoroughfare somewhere. They actually wanted people to see the suffering of it. They wanted people to be in fear of what the Roman government could do if you crossed the line with them. And so it was reserved for the worst type of criminals and rebels. It was long-lasting. Sometimes a crucifixion would, would last for three or even up to three and a half days, we read in Josephus, the historian. And of course, the whole goal was to instill fear and respect for the Roman government in the crucifixion. The procedure was this. As Mark says, the victim was scourged or flogged, we would say. The flogging was so cruel that many people died during the flogging because they took a cat of nine tails, several leather thongs with glass or rocks or steel in the end of them. And they would literally, the executioner would hit the victim with that and literally it would stick in his back and he would pull it down. And so Isaiah said, they plowed my back referring to Jesus Christ. They plowed my back. You watched it in The Passion of the Christ if you saw that. And it's the cruelest, most revolting part of that entire movie, worse than the, 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 the other parts of crucifixion. It is so cruel and so violent that Josephus said many people died during the scourging And he said that in some cases even that the internal organs would fall out of the body backward onto the ground because the back was cut so severely and so deeply by the flogging. Jesus endured that. And they put the crown thorns on his head. They didn't do that for everyone. They did that to mock him. And the victim was laid down in the crossbar there, patabulum of the cross they call it. They nailed his hands with large nails and then the feet were stacked one on top of the other. And they would nail the victim through his arches to the upright pole of the cross. And then the cross would be hoisted up with the victim on it. And they would drop the, the upright bar of the cross into a hole three or four feet deep. Sometimes so cruel that the, the drop the victim would tear loose from the cross and have to be renailed it's horrible it's horrible it, it solemnizes a crowd when you begin to talk about it and it should even as hardened as we are by the cruel movies that we've seen the very thought of someone going through that is incredible In his case, they placed a sign over his head that said, the king of the Jews. They put it there to mock him, but it was true. And the Jews came and said, no, change that, Pilate. We want that sign to say he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate said, no, I'm not going to do that. What I've written, I've written. And the irony of it is that that's exactly who he was, though they wrote it from the other standpoint. And then after being nailed up there and all that the victim had gone through, they would be exposed to the elements, to the heat, to the cold at night because it's cold at 4,000 feet in Jerusalem and Israel every night. And the crowd would scorn them and ridicule them and throw rocks at them and throw tomatoes at them, curse them. And death would come very, very slowly. It came from shock. It would come from a blood loss because it was a seepage of blood throughout the whole procedure. It would come from exposure. It would come from dehydration because they hung there without any liquid, of course. It would come from asphyxiation because they would bend over and it would put pressure on their diaphragm. They'd push back up and gasp for air. You get the idea. It's the worst thing that a wicked mind could conceive, to do that to a human being for two or three days. And yet, he did that for us. He did that for you. He did that for me. He did it for every person. I told you last week, and I remind you again, that Christ's death was different than any other man who ever lived. You see... Don't think of Jesus hanging there like these people that I've described so far and their life sort of ebbing out of them slowly and through loss of blood and, and, and dehydration and so on. They just gradually weaken. That's true of other people. It was not true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't die a victim. As the old song says, he could have called 10,000 angels who would have come and taken him off the cross. But he didn't, he willingly died. He was there voluntarily. He was there intentionally. He was there because he wanted to be there, believe it or not. And he was not killed and he was not a martyr. He dismissed his own spirit. When he knew that he had paid for the sins of humanity for all time, he said, It's finished. And he's the only person who ever dismissed his own spirit. He spoke to his father Father, into thy hands. I commend my spirit. And then he dropped his head and said, Tetelestai, it's finished. The archaeologists have dug up clay tablets that they used in those days as a bill, a statement, if you will. They didn't have the paper we do. and they, And when a bill was paid, they would write on it, to tell us die it is paid it's finished we've actually got tablets like that in museums around the world now and on that day jesus christ used that word after he had paid for my sin and yours it is finished it's paid the debt of sin is paid in mark 15:39 we read there the last verse And that Roman centurion who had stood there and over and over and over had witnessed and overseen the execution of these criminals said, truly, this man is the Son of God. He's not like any other criminal who ever died. This man is unique. He is the Son of God. That hardened soldier witnessed as to who he was. So what do we learn from this that I've gone through in great detail again today to try to describe for you? What do we learn from the cross? One, I'll learn that the cross reveals what God thinks of mankind. The cross reveals what God thinks of humanity. The cross reveals what God thinks of you. And it tells me most of all that he loves me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No one has ever loved me enough to do that for me. Not my mother, not my father, not my wife, not the dearest friend. Who would love me enough to go through all of that for me just simply that I might have forgiveness of my sins? Only the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross revealed. Every time you look up here, remember, the cross says that God loves everybody who comes in this building, and those outside the building as well. But the cross tells me about another side of God's nature, because God not only loves me, God is a just God, a holy God, a righteous God. And if he is just and righteous and holy, then every single sin ever committed on this planet must be paid for by someone. And on that day, Jesus Christ, of course, came to do that. And from the sixth hour, noon, to the ninth hour, 3 p.m., God the Father literally unleashed his wrath upon his Son, and in his justice... He punished every sin ever committed, past, present, and future, as long as the world shall endure. Every sin was punished in Jesus Christ on the cross that day. The theologians call it the trade, the great transaction where the innocent Son of God becomes the sacrificial Lamb who pays for the sins of all the world for all of time. Every murder, every theft, every lustful glance, every lie, every profane word, every prideful thought, every secret sin that we think nobody knows about but me, but Jesus Christ paid for those, and the sins of everyone. And so we read 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. I hope you still have your finger there. He made him in those six hours to be sin for us who knew no sin. So the cross tells me what God thinks of man, the trade, where he took our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Secondly, the cross reveals what man thinks of God. And on, I stand here and I look at the cross and I see those men clear their throat and spit in the lovely face of the Son of God. I see them curse him and beat him, ridicule him and mock him and say, if you're who you say you are, why don't you come down from the cross? And I see the way that they treat the Son of God and it reveals to me in my worldview the evil of the human heart. What what men really do think of Almighty God was revealed at the cross. And the cross reveals that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Today, the liberals, the politically correct, people from other religious backgrounds, they really resent what's on that screen, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. The Bible says, I am Jesus, it quotes Jesus, I am the way, the way. And the religious world looks at that and they say, oh, that's too exclusive. Exclusive. That's just too narrow for me. I'm a broader person than that. You're telling me that Jesus is the only way man can approach God? That's what I'm telling you. That's what I'm telling you. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we got a problem. This world is broken. It is so broken. The news this week again tells us how really broken and flawed humanity is and how hopeless it is. And we can do nothing about it. I look in my own heart and I discover I too am broken. And evil dominates this world today. And the question is, Whoever did anything to reconcile men to God other than Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus is not the way. Now, how you think? What are you going to do with your sins? Hmm. If He isn't the way, did Mohammed pay for your sins? Did Buddha? Did Krishna? You tell me who There's no other person in all of even human history Who did anything to reconcile humanity to God Outside of Jesus Christ He he was the only one who ever addressed the problem So you reject him You've rejected essentially the only solution there is You see Aspirin won't dissolve a tumor you can cut up your credit card after you're in debt, but it won't do anything about it. If my pipes are stopped up at home, I don't call my orthodontist. And when I need forgiveness of sin, there's one place to go in all the world, and that's the cross. And for all these years, I've been standing here, and if you notice when I give the invitation, I almost say the same thing every time come to the cross. Not to the church. The Baptist temple can't save you. Not to Bill Monroe. No religious leader has the power to help you find forgiveness of sin. You come to the cross. And there the Lamb of God died for your sin. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from A-double-L-all sin, once and for all, and now and forever. Amen. Stand to your feet with me if you will, please.